O congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our God is a just God. We understand justice. It's a concept we, we get, but sometimes we wish, well, it could be just a little different. Sometimes we wish maybe sometimes justice could, uh, could be softer. Let, let me explain. Sometimes I have to sit down with, with ministers as they're struggling with something, or an elder as he's struggling with something that's going on. and I have to remind them, as we all need this reminding from time to time, that when it comes to church discipline, sometimes our hands are tied behind our back. And there's not much we can do in certain issues. For instance, when it comes to an unrepentant sinner, there's not much the minister and elders can do if they continue to be unrepentant. It leads to, through trial and the various things, it leads to excommunication. Paul tells the Corinthian church, Get them out of there. Yeah, but the same thing that binds our hands, ties our hands behind our back when it comes to an unrepentant sinner needs to be the same thing that ties our hands behind our back when it comes to a, a repentant believer. That's why in 2 Corinthians you see Paul say, bring him back in. Bring him back in. Because we need to recognize that the last step of church discipline is not excommunication. It's, well, it's restoration. <laughs> you see, and so our hands are tied in more than one way. It's tied not only with the negative declaration, but then it's tied also with, hey, this guy's repented. She's repented. We don't need to add more than what the Bible already has called her or him to do. It's time to restore them. You see, the reason for all of this is the fact that we're not able to read the heart of a person. We're not God that looks down upon David and says, this man right here, he has a heart after me. We, we don't have that ability. Last time I checked, we can't do that. There's not a piece of spiritual equipment that's able to do that type of an ultrasound and say, oh, look at there, he's got a heart. And it's pumping with the blood of Christ. No. Instead, what do we do? We take people at their word. Yeah, they can get away with it because they can be a good actor and they could lie and they could cheat and they could steal it in that regard. But at the end of the day, we take people at their word. We need someone else that can see much further into the heart of man. You see, we confess that we need another person to help us in this moment. Somebody that's never going to have egg in his face. Somebody that's never going to get it wrong. Because we could. We daily err. We daily 
increase our guilt. And we recognize from question and answer 13, just before 14, cell numbers. We need another. We cannot make satisfaction because we are the guilty party. You see, this is why question and answer 14 gets it that way. Look there again. I'm reading out of the Trinity. Can another creature at any at all pay this debt for us? No. To begin with, God will not punish any other creature for what a human is guilty of. Furthermore, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. So we need another. When dealing with the justice of God, we can't stand it because, well, 13 says we daily increase our guilt, but not only that, there's no other creature that can get it. There's no other creature. So who do we have to go before us? Who do we have that can stand in our place? And to help us understand this, we're going to walk through that passage of Hebrews chapter 2, 14 through 18, and see the author of Hebrews points out that we need Jesus. We need Jesus as our perfect high priest, for he makes satisfaction, and no other creature will do. We need Jesus. First, we'll consider the fact that Christ, as the passage said, partook of the same things. Flesh and blood. He became man. We're going to see that in verses 14 and 15. And then secondly, we'll see how Christ, and there's that wonderfully big word, how Christ was our propitiation. In 16 through 18. But first, look, at, look again at verses 14 through 15. We ask the question, why did Jesus, and the catechism later asked this question, why did Jesus have to become true and righteous man? See, the catechism is leading us up to that, to that reality. And the answer is seen here in this passage as well, is that Jesus had to be, take on a human nature. He had to be true and righteous man. He had to partake flesh. Because it was humanity that sinned against the most high majesty of God. Verse 14 says he did this to destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Look again at verse 14 with me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. As the author of Hebrews here reveals why Jesus had to become fully human, fully man, we find first of all the reason. The reason is due to us. You and me. We, every single one of us in here, no matter the age, no matter the condition in life, are fully human. Fully human. Jesus, He had to go this route. He had to go this way. He had to go this... So those who fell 
in Adam who fell in Eve could potentially be redeemed. We recognize, and I use that word potentially very carefully because it's not everyone. And it's not a potential redemption for the elect. No, it's an absolute redemption for the elect. He came and died for a particular people. We also need to recognize with this that there was only one way that he could come. Jesus could not have come any other way. He could not have come in, in a, as a lamb. He could not have come as a lion. He could not have come as a donkey. He could not have come as an ox. It had to be human. It had to be a man. It had to be flesh and blood. He had to take on the very nature that had fallen into sin. And yet he himself had to be one without sin. And that's why we see secondly here that Jesus had to share in the same human life that we share in. He had to live. He couldn't have just appeared one day and got the work done and then disappeared. No, it's Jesus had to go through conception because you've went through conception. He had to go through birth because you've gone through birth. He had to go through childhood because you've gone through childhood. He had to go through the rough, um, you know, teenage, adolescent years because, well, you have as well. He had to go through all of this. He had to live an adult life because you do. Add to that all the other things that he had to go through. He had to deal with temptation. But never sin. Get that. That's something we can't imagine. That's something, that's something that's impossible for us from conception on to know what it's like to be tempted but not... not no. But Jesus does. He also had to deal with the bitterness of a fallen world, of a disease, plague-ridden world, of the common cold, of the flu, of the various ailments that people get because of sin. He had to struggle with hunger and thirst. He fasted for 40 days. The Bible wonderfully says, and at the end of it, he was hungry. <laughs> Who wouldn't have been? Who wouldn't have been? He had to go through all of this because each and every one of us in here does too. But then the biggest difference with what Christ had to do and that what we are unable to do is found in this verse. And that's thirdly, He had to die in order to overcome death. That's not us. That's Him. That's not even Elijah. That's not Enoch. That's just Jesus. Jesus' death was Satan's last moment of triumph. I got him. I got him. But death could not hold him down. Death couldn't keep him down. Jesus overcame death with His resurrection. In that moment, it was as was promised, He crushed the serpent's head. 
removing the power. And for those that have gone through death, removing its sting. And so now every time the gospel is preached, the devil is reminded of his loss at that cross. That's the power of Jesus. And this, we are released then. In this life, we are released then from the fear of death. Not the sting of death. Because every time a loved one dies, we feel it. We feel that sting. Jesus knows what that sting feels like as He wept for Lazarus. But we no longer have to live with the fear of death. Look at verse 15. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, the author of Hebrews continues to explain why Christ had to take on human flesh. Why He had to become fully man. And that is because we are in bondage. We're enslaved. We should consider more closely what this verse means in light of the redemption that we have in Christ. That we have no more chains. That we're no longer behind bars. This redemption is the focus that the author of Hebrews wants us to recognize. First, we need to recognize that we needed to be released. You see that in the verse. We needed to be released. The question here is, what do we need to be released from? If we're in chains, what what is it that's got us in chains? The answer, as we will see, is really twofold throughout this verse. The first is from the fear of our last enemy. Which is death. And from bondage, which that fear has placed us in. Recognize the overall enemy from which we have best recognized we have been released from is the devil and our sin. The devil has ensnared us in our own sin. And this is why Christ came. He came to overcome that trap and to put him in it. He came to bind the devil. Christ came to overcome human flesh. To say no to temptation. And thus, crush the head of the devil. We've been released from these. We've been released. Secondly, we fear death. Rightly so, it is the last enemy. It is the last enemy. We must recognize that death is an enemy. We recognize the wages of sin is death. We must recognize that death is an instrument that God uses to punish mankind because of their failure to not eat of the fruit in the garden. Death was not around before the fall. Death entered the world. Because of the fall. Therefore, to truly be set free, Christ had to overcome this last enemy of mankind. To overcome death, He now has the power 
of death in His hands. Christ is champion. And He did it through His resurrection. He defeated death. The third thing to see here is that we're in bondage and did not even know it. If you think about your loved ones, your friends that may yet have actually bowed to Christ, that have yet to repented of sin and, and turned to Jesus. Think about it. And this bondage is a lifetime of bondage. This sin that we're plagued with is a lifetime of sin. And well, we're no longer bound by that. See, bondage is a spiritual and at times can be a physical reality, but it's spiritual. The children of Israel were physically bound in bondage in Egypt, and that then becomes the picture of what it's like to be in bondage to sin. Therefore, when Moses comes in and redeems the people, he sets the captives free, he ushers them, or they have that mass exodus out of Egypt. That's the picture of what Jesus is doing. He is the one leading this new exodus. Jesus is leading the greater exodus. Our eternal exodus. And the Pharaoh death and the devil and the angel of death does not overtake us. Because we have Christ. You see, this spiritual exodus takes place because Christ actually according to the author of Hebrews, propitiates God's wrath towards sinners. And we're going we're to talk about what that word means. But this is what we are going to see as we look at verses 16 through 18. Let's first consider the fact that Christ died for men and mankind alone. And this takes us to verses 16 and 17. For surely it is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham... Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Looking at these verses, verse 16 reveals to us that only mankind need redemption that Christ provides. Only mankind. Verse 17 gives us a follow-up reason for Christ needing, as we saw in the first point, now we see it again here in the second point for Christ needing to come in the first place. <clears throat> so consider first of all this reality that angels, angels do not need a Savior. That's verse 16. Angels don't need a Redeemer. The angels in heaven, well, they're a, they're a, they are a fixed number. It's a fixed number. Just like the elect of God are a fixed number, so too here the heavenly ministers are fixed numbers too. The number of fallen angels are fixed. It's certain. And the number of the elect angels are fixed and certain. No need for redemption. This is why they do not have offspring, children, because the moment their creation, the Bible says it was a complete number. This changes the way some people view the opening chapters of Genesis when it talks about the sons of God and the daughters of men. 
It's not talking about angels. Because angels don't procreate. It's a fixed number. They don't reproduce. Angels cannot do that. And they're not redeemable. According to the author of Hebrews. They are what they are. But it's not so with man. That's not true of man. In fact, we are created to not only procreate, but to reflect the very image of God, to have sons and daughters. This is not true of those heavenly beings. They are not image bearers. Not created in the image of God. Yet notice why Christ came in verse 17 to be our high priest, not theirs, ours. Jesus came to sacrifice Himself for us, not them, but for us. Jesus came to be sacrificed. Jesus came for man to propitiate, according to the verse, the wrath because of sin, the wrath of God, the anger of God for mankind's sin. Now let's explain this. What does propitiate mean? It means God, in, in the strictest sense, it has got to do with God's anger towards sin. His wrath towards sin. And in the sacrifice of Christ, the work that Jesus is doing there is to remove that anger. To remove that wrath. It, it's in a similar way the, the type of intercessory prayer Abraham was making over Sodom and Gomorrah. And he got, him, he got, he got it down to just ten. If you find ten in the city, would you spare it? That's a question of propitiation. He says, yes, if I find ten. I'll spare it. Guess what? He doesn't even find ten. Four. He found four. It's a similar question that Jonah has to wrestle with as he's sitting outside of Nineveh and God has spared the city of Nineveh. Jonah says, I knew you would do this. You're slow to anger. Abounding in love. And this is Christ's ministry as our high priest on the cross he is removing that wrath. How is He doing that? By, taping, by taking every ounce of it. Down to the bitter dregs. He drunk the wrath of God. Imagine all of the sin that you have committed and the sins that you are going to commit. Christ died for it. He took it all. So we no longer have to view God as a vengeful God, as a wrathful God. Instead, because of Christ's work, that anger and that wrath is not there for us anymore. What's left is the grace and mercy of God. It's the flip side of the coin of justice. It's mercy. Christ took the justice. Christ took the wrath. And what has He left for us? The mercy and the grace and the love of God. We're no longer, as we see it here, under this bondage 
of the devil and death, but instead what we have is what Christ has done for us, which is explained there in verse 17. He has set us free, and now we have been made into a good and rightful relationship with the Father in heaven. Not an angry Father. Not a Father with wrath, but one with love. This moment is such a beautiful thing. And it's seen out in this passage that actually deals with our current situation in life. Where we find ourselves today, this is the in-between moment, waiting for that perfection of glory. The moment now. Christ came. And in that incarnation, He reveals to us what we have in God. We have a Savior who is able to relate to us in our very lowest of moments. And yet without sinning. Imagine the cross for a moment as we get ready to look at verse 8. The lowest moment for the life of Jesus was there on the cross. Have you ever found yourself at home praying for your loved one and you said, you know, or praying even for your own sin, and you say, God, it seems like you've forsaken me. My God, my God, why? Have you ever found yourself in that moment of great solitude where it seems like you're the only one that is going through this struggle, the only one that's going through this conflict, the only one that is plagued in this way, and you wonder, is God even paying attention? Does He even know? Maybe you're like Job. No, I will not curse God and die. I want to find out why. Why this has happened to me. I have a dear friend who's lost his job. I kid you not. His bank account was hacked. His car was stolen. He fell off his motorcycle and he broke some ribs. And he's going, God, why? Can't you cut a brother some slack? Why? You know, aside, you know, he didn't lose his children. He doesn't have boils and dogs are not licking him. That's Job. But still, my God, my God, why have you seemed to forsake in me? Your child, the one that Christ has purchased. We see a Savior who knows what that feels like. Don't you see that? We serve a God who knows what it's like to be in our loneliest of moments. Who knows what it's like to cry over the death of a father. Of a loved one. Who has seen children in the weakest of places. He knows. And look at what verse 18 says. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, in this verse, we learn more about the suffering of Christ through His life. Not only did Christ have to deal with the wrath of God while upon the cross, not only did He have to deal with all the anger that was built up because of our sin, but look at what had to happen here in His life. Notice Christ suffered. He suffered. Oh, did He suffer. 
Not like any of us in here. We suffer sometimes because of our own sinfulness. We suffer here sometimes because we are jerks. We can be that way. Sometimes we deserve it. But Christ not once deserved what He got. And so notice, He suffered. And He suffered in being tempted. Many have argued against this. How could it be a real temptation if He couldn't have sinned? How could it have been real? Oh, it was real. It was real when we consider the fact that just because something is impossible does not negate the fact that it was still a trial. It was still a trial He had to go through because you, each and every one of you in here goes through similar trials in life. Of food. Of despair. Of thinking more highly than you really are. Pride. And look at Christ. Jesus was truly tempted. Like Adam and Eve were truly tempted to look and think themselves wiser than God. To trust in the Word of a creature instead of the Creator. But Jesus, when tempted, resisted the devil. Resisted His lies for the Word that never lies. That's what He did. He showed us the way. He showed us what it looks like. He showed us that it's not only possible, but we can do it through Him who gives us the strength. So we must notice with this very verse though, that is Christ was tempted. And in that temptation, He has suffered like us. He knows 40 days, no food, no water, tempted. 40 days of fasting. And He's hungry. And then He's tempted. Kind of the weakest of moments. See, as the author of Hebrews points out, secondly, Jesus is able to sympathize with us because He knows the subtle allure of temptation. See, Jesus was able to be tempted and notice He walked away. See that? He walked away without a second look. Not like Lot's wife. She was one of the four that God rescued out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And she was tempted to look back. May none of us in here be pillars of salt. But may we stand firm in Christ and walk forward as He leads us. May we not always look over our shoulders as to what we were. Where we are going and who we are. Jesus showed us that you can be tempted and you can walk away. It's possible. But not only do we have the three temptations the devil threw at Jesus in the wilderness, but think about the many other moments Jesus had opportunities to sin, but did not. Read the whole gospel account. Don't just stop at those temptations. The devil left for a time. He left for another opportune time. You have all those times. He could have just skipped church. He could have just skipped it. Don't need to go. Especially since why? What, what was the main activity of church in the Old Testament? The sacrifice. What sin did he have to sacrifice for? 
He's the one they're supposed to be worshiping in the first place. He could have just skipped it, but he didn't. Jesus went to Passover as the Passover lamb. Jesus went to Pentecost as the Word of God delivered the man. Jesus even went to Hanukkah. I mean, it's in the book of John. And He says, I am the light of the world. Not that menorah over there, you silly people. I'm the light of the world. Jesus went to tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles. He's the One. He's the God, the Emmanuel, who came and tabernacled among us. Jesus did all of this. He never missed once. In fact, when He was a boy... His parents thought he was in the crowd going back home from these pilgrim feasts. They turn around, they can't find Jesus. Where in the world's Jesus? And he's still back at his father's house. He's still at worship. Imagine that going home and where's your child? Still here singing a song, still praying, wanting to hear more, asking the pastor more questions. That was Jesus. Jesus still followed the Sabbath command. And when questioned about taxation, Jesus said what? Pay your taxes. When a woman caught in adultery, caught in adultery, we all know what that means. And we all know now what that looks like as she's been paraded and Jesus gets down on His knees and He starts drawing in the sand. Not once a glance of lust-filled temptation because to lust would have been to sin. Didn't happen once. And he said, you who has no sin, cast the first stone. And you hear every stone drop to the ground. And Jesus is still riding in the sand. And she's still there. And what does he tell her? He tells her the very same that He tells us. Go and sin no more. Jesus shows us the way. He has quieted the wrath of God. We no longer have to worry and fear that. We no longer have to fear the devil or death. Their sting has been removed. The fear is gone. And He has showed us a better way to walk, a better way to move, a better way to live. He showed us a better life. And so as we come to a close today, consider some of these takeaways. The first thing to recognize as we consider that we need Jesus. Question and answer 14 is making that very clear. We need Christ. No other creature will do. We need Christ. Why? Notice He came to save us from our enemies. Those enemies include the devil, <coughs> the father of lies. There's nothing that comes out of His mouth that is true. Even when He is using Scripture, He's twisting it. The works of the flesh include heresy. And He's the best heretic. Not a word we can trust coming out of the mouth of the devil. Jesus, on the other hand, He is walking truth. And when He says, 
No more wrath for you. Believe Him. When He says He has made Satan His footstool, believe Him. He has saved us. He's even saved us from ourselves. If left to ourselves, we would dig ourselves deeper into the pit of destruction. If we're honest. But Christ came down and redeemed us. He has rescued us. He came down into this pit of mire and muck. And He has lifted us up on His back. And He has carried us to a firm foundation. He has given us feet that will not slip. And a sturdy step. He has saved us even from the world and its schemes. There is nothing they are able to do that would take us from His saving arms. He has us. And finally, He saved us from the power of death. Death may still have a sting, but its power over you is gone. The second takeaway for today. As we think about this passage. And the most comforting. Of reality. With why Christ had to come. As a man. So that we can have a savior. So that the son of God. Can truly sympathize. With our sorrow with our woe, with our weakness. He can know. At the very heart of the compassion of Christ, as He comes and suffers with us, at the very heart is the reality that He has come to stand right next to us. To not leave us, nor forsake us when it gets too hard. It's never too hard for Him. And so He comes. And by His Word and by His Spirit, He stands right next to us. That's why the Apostles said they counted it joy to suffer with Christ. Christ suffered in every way we have so that we could be assured There's a way out of this life. There's a way out of suffering. There's a way out of these tears. And this bitterness. Of sin. There's a way out of even death. And it's not looking to ourselves. Looking down. And and it's not even looking to the person next to you. It's only and is ever been looking to Christ alone. The seed of the woman. The promise of Abraham. The son of David. Jesus Christ. Our high priest. You look to him. And you find this assurance. 
or there's nothing you're going through that He cannot help you through. Turn to Him this day and be comfortable. Amen.